Thank mm-hmm. you.
It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which one of them it might be who would do this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctified myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Would you please stand as we sing?
Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here where I go while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, They led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Please remain seated as we sing.
together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, replied Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth... Why did you strike me? Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, O King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. 
As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Please stand as we sing. Should I be? 
please be seated. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, where they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of Jews, but this man claimed to be the King of Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of that which you've accomplished for us. Father, we thank you that you did not scorn the shame of the cross, Father, but you embraced it. That you won life for us in your name. Pray, Father, that you would continue to speak to us and nourish us with solid spiritual food from your word. That you would change us and transform us into a people. A people for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We see Jesus with the disciples and with the multitude of the crowds. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In the few minutes we spent here, we'll see that Peter had an incomplete picture of the work of Christ. That there was a necessity and a cost for Christ to suffer and that there is also a necessity and a cost for those who would believe. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God and he's been talking about the gospel since early in the gospel of Mark. All the way in the beginning in chapter 1 it makes it quite clear that that's his purpose And yet here in chapter 8, we see Peter putting on the brakes. We see him slowing Jesus down. We see the servant. We see the follower. So incensed at the message, he sees his master beginning to teach that he pulls him aside and begins to yell at him, to chastise him, to rebuke Jesus for preaching the fullness of that gospel. Do we ever see in the scriptures Jesus respond to a, to a critic with a more weighty response than get behind me, Satan? It's striking. It's, it's almost scandalous that he's using that phrase, that he's equating his follower Peter with the adversary, with the enemy of God with the person who was there in the garden at the fall, the one who took him out in the wilderness to tempt him, the one who the Scriptures say goes out like a roaring lion to devour those who would believe. And yet Jesus is equating Peter with that very name. How did this happen? Peter had an incomplete picture of the work of Christ. In the Old Testament, we see two genres of prophetic literature that speak about the coming Messiah, the Christ. And that one genre of predictive prophecies refers to the coming King, the the agent of God that is going to begin God's righteous reign on the earth, that is going to punish sin, that will punish wickedness, that will put an end to suffering and that will begin justice. The God who will drive out the enemies of His people. 
and will begin and enact His kingdom. And yet we have another genre. The genre that talks about the suffering servant Messiah. The genre that refers to the Christ as the one who will take the sins and the iniquities of those who believe upon Himself. And if you were Peter and you were there on the shores of Galilee and you saw your people oppressed, perhaps like us, we would look at the Christ and that one genre would be more appealing to us than the other. The Christ without the cross. The King without the mark of suffering that would exalt Him as such. In the same way we see Jesus when He is taken by the devil into the wilderness and He is tempted three times. It is that third temptation that finally puts Him over the edge. It is that third temptation that finally has Him chastise the enemy and say, Away from me, Satan. It's the temptation when He he takes Him over and, and surveys all the kingdoms of the earth and Satan says, I will give you all of these but you have to worship me. I will give you all the glory. I will give you the fulfillment of all of that one set of prophecies that have spoken about you without the cost, without the pain, without the suffering. But worship me. And we see um, Jesus scandalized by that thought, by, by Peter having an incomplete thought of his person and of his work. And today we run the same risk of having an incomplete picture of our Lord and Savior. We run the risk of having an incomplete picture of His person and work and thus relating to Him falsely. When we approach God, do we approach Him as the Savior of our souls? As the Redeemer who purchased us with a price? Or do we approach Him in prayer as the God that we go to like He's a vending machine when we need something? Do we approach Him like a principal who is just walking around looking to enforce a code of behavior that as long as we can avoid being caught, we can avoid the punishment and the guilt? Do we approach Him like a Sunday school teacher who is giving us moral advice, but we can take it or leave it? Or do we approach Him as the God who demonstrated His great love for us at the cross? It is only by having the complete picture, by having both genres of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, it is only by standing at the foot of the cross that we can be filled with the depth and the totality of God's love for us. We must not have an incomplete picture. There is a necessity of Christ to suffer and there is a cost that He paid. Notice in the beginning there, as Jesus is teaching them, He said, the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer. Not just He is choosing to suffer. He must suffer. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. The faithfulness of God must be upheld. The Word of God is truth and it cannot be broken. The Christ must suffer. We have heard the testimony for so many years that it is entirely too easy for us to run the risk of thinking that God just happened to choose to redeem us this way. 
as if he stood before three potential doors of redemption and just happened to open the door to suffering. But the Scriptures said that he must suffer. We gain confused when we um, perhaps like some, some remnants and some segments of popular culture feel that, well, if God is really all loving and if God is really all powerful, why doesn't he just get, forgive us and do a blank slate? Why did there need to be a cost? Why does he even need to punish sin, much less take it up upon himself? But the argument goes, if God really is so full of love, then why he, can't he just let it all go? But we are reminded here that the Christ must suffer. We're reminded that God never acts contrary to his character. You and I, no matter what any words someone would use to describe us, 100% of the time we never fulfill those words. The very best of us is never 100% faithful in all things. The most truthful of us is never truthful and honest and without lie on our lips 100% of the time. But God is faithful and He never acts contrary to His own character. And in order for Him to truly be a God who is love and a God who is just as the Scriptures proclaim Him to be, there needs to be a payment. The extension of love is not overlooking sin and forgiving it without a payment. That wouldn't be love. That would be indifference. Some years ago, there was a commercial on TV. It was a smoke, anti-smoking commercial. And in that commercial, you saw a woman. I think she was a teenage girl on the edge of a pier by a lake. And she's standing on that pier and she's looking out at someone who's in the lake drowning. And this person in the lake is, is crying out for help and she's screaming and she's thrashing her arms and she's slowly bobbing up and down underneath the water and above it. And the entire time this person on the pier, they're just standing there. She's not grabbing her cell phone to call for help. She's not preparing to dive in. She doesn't even seem to care. She just stares, emotionless. It's the height of indifference, and it would be the height of indifference of God to not punish sin. There are two realities in this room. One, we have all been hurt, and two, we have all done some hurting. And it would be an indifferent God. It would be an unloving God. It would be a God who minimized the depth of that pain that we have felt and that pain that we have caused if He said, I will do nothing. I will not exact payment. That would be a God who truly did not love us or care for the enormity of this life and the pain it causes us. Christ had to suffer and He paid the ultimate cost for that suffering. And we must remember that, isn't what, that, that is the essence of the Gospel. In this past week, I happened to read two Bible tracts. Your... Um, and these little pieces of literature that we're supposed to go around and use to talk to people about who Jesus is and how they can become a Christian. The first began with the title, Come Meet My Friend. And the entire tract 
went on with that idea in mind as if the sum total of the Christian life is trying to introduce someone to your best buddy. I had to read it three times to catch anything that talked about sin or the cross. Yeah, so in so much of our society, we boil down the difference when we speak about the difference between a believer and an unbeliever as if it's just some, a matter of personal preference, like what kind of music they listen to, as if it's just a matter of some kind of cognitive belief, like which political party they're associated with, the kind of thing you can take or leave. But we see that at, at center this fact that Christ must suffer. The fact that the difference between a believer and unbeliever is the difference between a man or a woman who's walking through life with their sins still on their head or someone who's walking cleansed and white as snow. The difference between someone who's lost and someone who's found. The difference who is someone who is spiritually dead and someone who is spiritually alive. Rabbi Zacharias says, God did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. But then we find ourselves in this verse with the reality that the gospel costs us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. We don't often talk about the cost to the potential believer because it sounds too much like a works righteousness idea as if somehow we could, we could earn our own salvation, which is patently untrue. But Jesus is making it quite clear here that there is a cost to the believer. After, you know, Peter says this scandalous statement, he rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. And then, in, in that statement there, I think we see Peter's own unwillingness to suffer. Here, he, this is his master, this is the Lord, this is the man that he has given everything up to follow. And now this man is saying, I am going to be betrayed. I am going to be rejected. I am going to be scorned and spit upon and I am going to hang on a cross and die. And we can only imagine that Peter was thinking, if that's what they're going to do to the man I follow, what will they do to me? I want, the Christ, I want Christ's kingdom, not the Christ on the cross. And we can see the, the emphasis of Jesus in trying to correct this mis misapprehended thought before it spreads further as he calls over the entire crowd. And he says, no. If you want to follow me, there's a cost. There's an inherent necessity for denial. There's a necessity for you carrying a cross. There's a necessity, if you want to gain this life that I offer, for you to lose the life that you think you have. There's a cost. The cross was a terrifying um, symbol to Jews. Today we have it in churches, we have it around our necks, we have it in stained glass windows and popular pieces of art. But 2,000 years ago, the only people on the cross were terrorists and criminals. The symbol of the, the, symbol of the cross 2,000 years ago was the symbol of rejection 
the symbol of suffering. The symbol in some cases, in some quarters, of God's abandonment. And yet here Jesus says, that symbol that you hate, that symbol that you detest, that symbol that you want nothing to do with, that burden that no man wants to bear, is the very burden you're going to have to shoulder on your on yourself if you want to follow me. Teacher Bonhoeffer writes, The cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with a call to abandon the attachments of this world. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. As surely as we celebrate the Passover, as surely um, as we celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us, we're reminded that He is asking us to do the same in return. There is a payment, there is a cost to that new life. The early Jews saw that cost on that first Passover night when they were in Egypt and they had to put the blood of the lambs on their door frames in order to be saved. They knew there was a cost that the free gift of salvation as it is so often called is not free. It is grace but it is not without cost. It it requires us to lay down and to give up our rights, ourselves, our everything as we repent, as we turn from ourselves, as we lay down our rights and our privileges and our wills, the lives that this world would tell us we have the power to control, to lead, and to do with as we will, when we will, how we will, are the very lives that Jesus says must be lost if we are to be found. There's a popular fiction today that is rampant in the church that it is entirely possible for someone to believe and be obedient later. It is possible for someone to believe and be saved and then at some later point they can get serious about their faith and repent and be obedient. But Jesus makes it quite clear here that no, they are one and the same. Repentance is the first step towards that new life. Again, Bonhoeffer writes, only believers are obedient and only the obedient believe. Heavenly Father, we just thank You and praise You for the cost that You have paid. We thank You and praise You, God, for the way in which You enable us to pay that cost. We thank You and praise You for the way that for the last 2,000 years You have been redeeming a people for Yourself. We pray that You would continue to do that among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was now about the sixth hour. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who come now to the communion table. We come to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ for us on that cross. And we take these elements that Jesus has given to us. We take the bread, which symbolizes His body, which was shed on the cross. And we take the cup, which symbolizes His blood that was poured out on the cross. And as we take the communion, we are telling Christ that we trust Him that we believe in Him, that He is our Savior, and that we desire to take up our crosses as well. And so it is a a moment of interaction with Jesus, who is the host of the table, who serves us. And so in a moment, we're going to have you come forward and take communion. We usually bring communion out into the congregation, but on this night, we have you come forward, and we'll have you start in the front and file out and Those of you on this side will come and receive the bread here. And then there will be someone over here with the cup. And then you can go there. Then cycle back to your seats on that side. And the same thing for those of you on this side. And you in the balcony can come down and do the same. When you receive the elements, you can eat them right then if you wish. Or you can wait to get back to your pew if you want to pray. Or whatever you'd like to do. But the important thing is to focus our hearts and our minds on the sacrifice of Christ. And to worship Him through the taking of these elements. So let's bow our heads again in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. We worship you.
we thank you. And these words fail because your sacrifice for us was so great. And Lord, we do desire to lay down our lives to be crucified with Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would call us to greater obedience and greater holiness, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of awe and wonder of your great love for us. So, Lord Jesus, stir up our affections for you. Stir up our love for you. Lord, awaken us from our slumber, we pray. And as we take this communion meal now, Lord, we just pray that you would, you would meet with us, that you would touch us, heal us, convict us. Lord, call us closer to yourself. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. I ask the elders to join me here.
you please stand as we join together in the old rugged cross?
on Saturday morning. There's a Easter breakfast here, so if you have kids or uh, neighbors or grandkids, I'd love for you to come back 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. And then on Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have a sunrise service at 6.30 at Stodder's Neck. And then three morning services here, 8 a.m., 9.45 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. So love for you to come back and invite a friend as we worship the Lord and celebrate the end of the story, which is his resurrection. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you send us out as your people, filled up with awe, humbled before you, and yet simultaneously filled with joy. And God, we just pray that we might be those people who lay down our lives for you, who lay down our lives for others. That, Lord, your, your powerful, royal, majestic kingdom would advance through our humble, self-sacrificial, self-denying service. Lord, teach us your ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What time are we here on Sunday? 9.25. Okay. 